right, so this week uh, we're going to be covering uh, Philippians 2. So if you want to open up your Bibles or, or open up your phones and go to Philippians 2.19. I don't mind people being on their phones in service. I just assume you're looking at the Bible. If you're not, please don't tell me because I would rather just assume. <laughs> and we will have it on the screen. It will be up there. I believe in faith. Um, but in this passage that we're going to explore today, we're going to explore the rest of uh, Philippians 2. Uh, we're going to meet two characters, two people. Uh, one of them is named Timothy, and one of them is named Epaphroditus. And Paul uh, recommends these people. In this passage, Paul recommends these people to the Philippians. He holds them up as examples of the faith, right? So in a section when he's talking about humility, that's what this whole chapter has been about, humility. First we started with, he said, be humble with one another. And then he said, be humble because Christ is humble. And then he kind of gave us some examples of that. Now he's giving us two people. He's telling us about two people that he wants us to hear about. And the reason is because these are two people who are good examples of what it means to be humble. And I want to know why. I want to know what's with these people. Why Timothy and Epaphroditus? Why not somebody else? What's so praiseworthy about these people? And also, I want to know, can we become more like that? And can we produce more Timothys and Epaphrodituses in our world today? So I'm curious about that. I mean, as I come to the text, I'm curious. Is anyone else curious this morning? Good. I'm preaching to you. The rest of you are just going to have to sit tight. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about raising up the next generation of leaders. We're going to be talking about what it means to invest in that. Um, and as we're sort of beginning that discussion, first I want to just touch really quickly because this last week, um, oh man, so much has happened this last week. One of the things that has happened was there was a uh, prominent uh, Christian leader who uh, made a big stink about women in, in church leadership and, and uh, made a big stink about some great women leaders, uh, Beth Moore in particular. And I felt like it would be appropriate to just touch base really quickly on our church's stance, our local church and our denomination's stance on women in leadership positions. And I want to be very clear on this point, in case you haven't heard it before. Uh, we strongly and unequivocally support women in leadership position on all levels of church leadership. So amen. from the, yeah, amen, yeah. From the president of our organization, we are founded by a woman, um, down to Local church leadership, amen, thank you, <laughs> down to local church leadership, you're as passionate as I am about this, thank you. And at this church in particular, we support women preachers. In fact, I was looking through past sermons in this last year, um, when I wasn't the one preaching, over 75% of the time, a woman was preaching or teaching here at this church. Um, we have 17 leaders serving in 25 leadership positions in this church, and 64% of those positions are filled by women. Right? We don't just talk about how it's important to have women in leadership. We want to platform women. We want to give them power. We want to give them investment. And we want to fight for their right to fulfill the mission that God has given to them. And a mission which does not come from, from people. And I want to explain a little bit. I, I know that this might seem superfluous, but this is actually important. I want to explain a little bit why I'm not concerned about the fact that we have more women serving than men in our church. And, and I have, no, it's not. I, I, and I, I, want to be, I want to be clear on this too, because I want you to know where my heart is and where I come from. Um, first of all, women have been excluded from church leadership for centuries. 
there was whole, like a whole millennia where you could not see and listen to a woman preaching. So I feel like we owe it to our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers who were refused the opportunity to serve in leadership positions. And if we need to compensate a little bit by giving some extra space or extra time or extra power away, I'm okay with that. I really am. I feel like if we wanted to be even Stephen about the whole thing, we should go for the next few centuries without hearing from a man. And nobody's proposing that. So I'm okay with giving 64% of our leadership positions away to women. So just FYI. And the other part is this. That's the first part. The second part is this. I've been, I know I look young. I know, but it's my complexion. But <laughs> I've been serving in, in leadership positions for 17 years in churches. And I've been doing ministry for 19 years continuously. Um, I have never once heard a male leader or a male pastor or a leadership team say this, we need more women in leadership. Not once have I heard a male leader or a male leadership team or a male pastor say, we need more women in leadership. Since I got to this church, and I want you to know, you were raising up women before we got here a year ago, but since I got here, I have heard multiple women leaders on multiple occasions say, we need to find more men in leadership. Where are the young men that are being raised up? Where are the men that we can put into leadership positions? I don't know if it's genetics or if it's the social environment or what, but women see collaboration in ways that men don't. And so that hurts a bit, right? That hurts a bit because, you know, it kind of makes me think, what have I been doing? You know? Um, so I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned at all. Women naturally begin fighting for the places of other people and positions uh, for men. So uh, I'm not concerned about women taking more leadership in our church, and we look forward to that in the future. So just FYI. I'm not concerned we're going to lose the male voice. I'm not concerned that the gospel is going to become feminized. The Spirit of God is no respecter of persons, and neither are we. That's just how it comes down to it. And I'm happy to say that we, we have, we do, and we will always support women in leadership. And if that's a problem, I mean, if that's something that you feel angry about or that's something that you feel like you have a biblical response to, please come and see me, talk to me, or come to a Wednesday night. We have discussion group every Wednesday night, and you can raise that up as an issue of discussion. We'd love to talk to you. And actually, a uh, good thing I remember that, because this Wednesday, we're going to have some pizza to serve. So if you, uh, because we thought, not a lot of people come to these Wednesday night things. How we can get poor people? And we realized it's 6 o'clock on a Wednesday People are eating dinner. So instead, just come here. Eat pizza with us. And you can have a conversation, and we're going through Romans. And, and uh, if you want to talk about women in ministry, I'm happy to do that. But that's something that we don't compromise on in our church and in our denomination. So, moving on. Get off my soapbox and get on to my other soapbox. <laughs> so this morning, we're going to look at two leaders. Two leaders that Paul is commending to the Philippians in the early church. Uh, so open up if you have... We're going to read verses 19 through 21, and uh, it should be up there as well. Here we go. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy, the guy Timothy there, he's mentioned 23 times in the New Testament, and every time he's mentioned, it's somehow in connection with Paul. Timothy and Paul, uh, there's a relationship there, a friendship, a collaborative work. They're working together. He was Paul's companion through much of Paul's later ministry when Paul was 
uh, on missions trips and when he was uh, planting churches. Timothy was, was his guy. He was his companion during those times. And Paul writes Timothy two letters that we have in the Bible. You have 1 Timothy and you have 2 Timothy. Those were letters written by Paul to Timothy. And in one of those letters, Paul calls Timothy my true son in the faith. He was a young man that Paul was raising up as a leader in the, emergency, in the emerging church. Right? But Timothy was more than just a brother. He, there was a strong familiar, familial connection between Paul and Timothy. I have no one else like him, writes Paul, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And I, I like this because notice that Paul doesn't say about Timothy, I have no one else like him. He's a great preacher, or he's, he's a really good teacher, or um, he's a very responsible and trustworthy person, or he's very honest, or he's got a great singing voice, right? Those might be a part of Timothy's qualities, but that's not what Paul focuses on. What Paul zeroes in on is he takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And then he has this interesting sort of add-on here, verse 21, where it says, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And at first, when I was putting together a sermon this week, I saw these as two separate things, you know. Like, Timothy is, number one, he takes a genuine interest in their welfare. And number two, he looks out for the interests of Christ. But then I thought to myself, what are the interests of Christ exactly? And if you look earlier, uh, if you back up to verse which we didn't have up there. But if you back up to verse 4 in the same chapter, Paul says this, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Jesus made the interests of other people his own interests. If we're going to be people who look out for Jesus' interests, then we need to start becoming genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. I want to say that again. If we're going to be people who look out for Jesus' interests, then we need to be genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. Man, God forgive me, because I have sometimes been callous to the welfare of others. Lord, forgive us for the hardness of our hearts. God, that we have passed others by. We didn't realize that when we neglected the welfare of other people, we weren't seeking after your own interests. We were seeking after ours. Some of us today need to ask God to breathe new life into our hearts. We need to ask God to soften our hearts. This is what Hebrews 3 says. It says, Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin deceives us by hardening our hearts towards other people. It comes in and begins to put a shell around our heart. And it stops us from seeking the interests of others. stops us from loving our neighbor. Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13. This is what Jesus says. He says, stop caring about murdering people. Isn't that amazing? Stop caring about murdering people. Because you know what? Once your heart has already been hardened towards your neighbor... The damage is already done. Once you've already decided in your heart, it's already done. Stop caring so much about committing adultery 
The second you are hardened to your neighbor and you start to objectify their spouse, the second you start to value your neighbor as less than you and to take advantage of them, the damage is already done. And at that point, your body is just catching up to where your heart already is. Right? Your heart has already decided what it's going to do. And the, your body is just catching up. We need to ask God to soften our hearts towards people. We need soft hearts so that like Timothy, we can show genuine concern for the welfare of the things of Jesus. Jesus is concerned about other people. Let's go on. Verse 22. Oh, there's more. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. The reality is that Timothy did not just drop out of the sky with a soft heart and genuine concern for other people. That happened. It was a process through the encouragement of Paul, through working alongside of them like a son with his father. He has served me in the work of the gospel. There was a long and developing relationship between Paul and Timothy. Timothy was trained up in this. He didn't just appear like it. Paul took the time to invest in Timothy. Timothy was produced through discipleship and partnership with Paul. I had a youth pastor. Um, and his name is Bronson Hill. He's a great guy. Maybe one day he'll listen to this. Shout out to Bronson. I love you, buddy. And uh, Bronson used to say, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. There's a process that we go through. First, God puts a call in your heart, and then he says, let me shape you. Let me form you. Let me create in you the kind of person that's going to fulfill this calling that I have for you. And the process that Timothy went through was with Paul, serving alongside Paul, watching how Paul did things, watching Paul preach, getting an opportunity to minister underneath him, and having that relationship, the back and forth of discipleship. For those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, for those of us who have a mature faith, who are you investing in to carry the torch after you're done? Who is your Timothy? Who are you feeding into? Who is it that you are taking under your wing to raise up? Are you investing in the next generation? Do you have a Timothy that you're encouraging and mentoring and building up? I was really convicted at this last uh, district conference was uh, a few weeks ago. I went to a workshop on Generation Z. And Gen Z is the, uh, the people who are alive today who are between the ages of 7 and 24. Is Gen Z, 7 and 24. And the workshop was on how we need to invest in this generation and how we're allowing this generation to kind of slip away. And I was really convicted because here I am a millennial, right? And still kind of dealing with the, am I being invested? Am I being mentored and all that? And, but I'm the third youngest generation alive today. There are two generations who have already been born behind me. What am I doing to help them along? What are you doing to help the generations behind you along? We all have a responsibility for this, right? This is our responsibility. This is a church that invests in the next generation. We invest in children and teenagers and young adults. We do it through programs. We do it through budgeting. But now I want to know, are we doing it through relationships? 
Are we doing it through relationships? So this is what I want you to do. I want you to take out a pen. Get a pen. Get a pen from your, there's a seat back in front of you. There's one behind you. Grab a pen. This is an exercise. Write down on your bulletin or on a card or on your hand the name of someone who is younger than you. And it can't be me. All right? The name of someone who is younger than you. Doesn't matter who it is. I want the name of somebody who's younger than you, and it can't be me. Okay, write down their name. You have something of value that that person needs. And I want to challenge you. Would you take five minutes this week? I'm asking for five minutes in your whole week that's ahead of you and invest in that person. For five minutes, you can give them a phone call. You could write a letter. You could give them a text message. If you give them a text message, by the way, I know that only takes about 45 seconds, so you better give them a few more. All right? Five minutes is what I'm looking for. Five minutes of investment in them. They need your wisdom. They need your encouragement. They need your support. They need your platform. They need your testimony. Younger generations need you. And if you're not investing in them right now, don't, don't feel bad about it. Just start. Start this week. Five minutes, all right? Let's move on to Epaphroditus. We're going to come back around to that in a little bit, but first we're going to move on to Epaphroditus. Verse 25. I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Contrasted with Timothy, whom we know a lot about, who shows up a lot in Scripture and different books, this is the only place where we learn anything about Epaphroditus. Paul mentions his name again at the end of the letter, but this pretty much is it in terms of what we know about him. Here's here's what we can kind of build around who this man was. We know that he was in Philippi. Uh, We know that he was sent on a mission to help Paul. He was probably carried some money. He probably carried maybe some letters of encouragement. Uh, Definitely carried you know some well wishes. And he left Philippi and he would travel to Rome. And it probably took him about two weeks or more to get there. And it's a very long journey and a very dangerous journey. And in verse 25 here, Paul says, I'm sending you back Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. Now, there's, a, there's an issue here with the translation. The word messenger, in Greek, it's usually a different word than what's used here. In Greek, usually the word messenger is the word angel. An angel is a messenger. But that's not the word that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus. Would you like to know what word he uses? I know you do. He uses the word apostle, who is also your apostle. And we don't, we don't translate that because we don't want people to think apostle like one of the 12 apostles, and that can be kind of confusing. But Epaphroditus is the apostle of the Philippians. He's the one who the Philippians are sending out. In the same way that Paul goes out, in the same way that, that Peter went out, in the same way that uh, you know, other apostles went out, Epaphroditus is the apostle of the Philippians he's sent out. The Philippian church had been founded by an apostle, and now they're sending out apostles. They weren't satisfied with just being recipients of grace. 
They weren't satisfied with just building up a church. They found out that Paul was in prison, and instead of asking, oh no, what are we going to do? They started to ask, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Forty years ago, this church was birthed out of Eugene Faith Center in Eugene. There was a bunch of other churches that were planted at the same time in Oregon and in Washington and around here. I want to be honest with you. I am not satisfied with being a church plant. I want to see us start planting churches. I want to see us start sending out apostles. And I want to speak prophetically. I believe that this church is going to send out a church plant. I believe that we're going to be involved in planting churches. The church at Philippi heard that Paul was in distress, and they said, we've got this. We're not going to wait for other people to step up to the plate. We're going to send somebody. We're going to take responsibility. Don't you think that God could have taken care of Paul's needs in a different way? If the Philippians hadn't stepped up, would God have allowed Paul to starve in prison and die? No, he wouldn't. But the church at Philippi refused to allow the opportunity to minister to pass them by. They heard about it and they said, send me. We got this. We want to invest in this. They weren't the richest church. They weren't the biggest church. Come on, somebody. They weren't the most reputable church. They were the most willing church. They sent someone because they were willing. Because when the opportunity arose, they stepped up to the plate. That's what God is looking for. Remember, what is that in Isaiah where God says, my eyes are searching over all of humanity. I'm looking for people who will respond to my call. How many people simply allow the opportunity to minister to pass them by? Let us be a church that raises our hand and says, send us. Send us, Lord. We want to be involved. And I want to tell you something. We are already doing that. This is a church that over the past year, we hit high above our belt when it comes to giving to missions. Yeah, amen. When it comes to community involvement, when it comes to uh, making an impact on our community, we hit high above our, our, uh, our weight class. But I'm not satisfied with that, brothers and sisters. Because to me, that's normal. To me, that's our bar. Because when God brings us opportunities, we say, yes, yes, send me. We're willing. We're willing. We may not be the biggest. We may not be the richest. We may not be the most reputable. But by goodness, we're going to send somebody. And if nobody else shows up, it's going to be us. (laughs) Amen. When the church of Philippi needed to send somebody, they sent Epaphroditus. And I want to talk a little bit more about this man. We can tell from his name that he's a Greek Gentile. Um, it's a common name among males, Greek Gentiles during this time. And his name actually comes from a Greek goddess. The, the, the name Aphrodite is in his name. And what that tells us is probably his family worshipped Aphrodite. Aphrodite was a Greek goddess of beauty and sex. FYI. And Epaphroditus is named after her. How many of you guys know God can redeem your name? How many of you guys know God can take a name that's been given to you and turn it around and make it into something else? God redeemed Epaphroditus for his mission. And when the church recognized that they needed to send somebody, this is the guy that they went to. He was given a name that had to do with lust. And God redeemed it, turned it around, and turned it into love. He was given a name where Aphrodite was the goddess of pride and vanity. 
God took that name and redeemed it and turned around and made it into humility. See, God takes the things that we've been given, and he redeems them and transforms them, begins to use them for the purpose of his kingdom. He's not constrained at all by the words that have been spoken over our lives. He has the power to redeem those things. We serve a God who redeems. And you might feel like, I can't do that today. I can't be Epaphroditus today. I can't, I I got something going on, or I'm too messed up, or I got something in my past. I can't do that. I I wouldn't be able to, to be that guy who was sent to help Paul today. But God can redeem your life, transform you, and tomorrow send you on a mission. Because that's what God does. That's what God does. He takes the people who are the least, and he flips them and sends them on a mission. That's Epaphroditus. That's you. God can do it today. So Epaphroditus, he takes enough money to get to Rome and to minister to Paul. He sets out, right? He's going on a mission. The church of Philippi sent this man. But that's not the end of the story. Let's go to the next part. What does it say next? Verse 26 says, I know Mike got too distracted. There we go. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Traveling is dangerous during this time. Somewhere along the way, we don't know where, somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus becomes sick, very, very sick. He's almost dead. He's on death's doorstep because he has chosen to step out on a mission for God when he saw an opportunity to minister. Early Pentecostal missionaries, uh, the Pentecostal movement, which were a part of, traces itself back to 1906, and they sent 40 missionaries the first year the Pentecostal movement began. 40 missionaries and it spanned from like, I believe it began in April. So from April to December, 40 people were sent out of a church of, that started with 30 people. And by the end of the year, they had sent 40 missionaries. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. And when they would go, the story is that oftentimes they would pack their clothes into coffins. They would bring their own coffin with them because the understanding was, I'm not coming back. And when I go, I'm going so completely, I don't even need luggage. What I need is a coffin so that when I die, they can just put me in the ground. It was an understanding also that Mission Field in the early 1900s is a dangerous place. Not just from other people, but from disease from civil wars and all the sort of things that were kind of building up at that time period, they were all in. They were all in for the mission of God. And one Pentecostal couple uh, was attached to this church in Chicago, and they, they got sent to China, just sent to China. It was a few months after they got married, and they turned around and they went to China on mission. God said, go, and they went. They arrived in China, and within a year, both of them had contracted malaria. The husband had actually also contracted dysentery, and he died there in China. He left his his widow, 19 years old, pregnant in China, alone, isolated. They were called to China as missionaries, and they found death. But you know what? 110 years later, God has begun to redeem 
that moment in time. Among, what is it, 9 million Christians in 144 countries. That young woman was known as Amy St. McPherson. And she founded our denomination that we're a part of. And today, 95% of Foursquare members are not in the United States. Do you know that? 95% of our church is not in the United States. It was founded in Los Angeles, but 95% of us are not in the United States because we've been on mission for 110 years. That's what we're interested in. Likewise, it's a church tradition that when Epaphroditus went back to Philippi, uh, eventually he served in the church, then he became a bishop. Bishop is sort of like our district supervisor. He oversees several churches. And the, the story goes that he was a bishop during that time. And a few years after this, the Roman Empire began to persecute Christians, and they specifically targeted bishops and priests. They wanted to cut the head off the snake, so that's who they went after. They rounded up the bishops first and executed them. Then they went after the priests and began rounding them up. Family, do you think that he was, a, he was afraid of death? Do you think that he was scared? He had already been at death's door. He had already stepped out in faith and gone to minister to Paul when he knew that that would be dangerous. He'd already experienced that. So when this persecution came, he was prepared. The places of discomfort that we're in today are God's investment into us for a calling that he has for us tomorrow. And we may feel uncomfortable, and we may feel like, I don't understand, and we may feel like this hurts. God is investing in your pain today. Remember last week I said he holds your sacrifices and honors them. God invests in you today, and tomorrow he's going to reap a benefit off of those things. You're starting to build a testimony. I do believe that one day we are going to plant churches. And don't say it's not me. Don't say that's not me. We're on a mission church. God has a calling for you. Are you called to your school? Are you called to your work? Are you called to your family? Are you called to your place of business? Go into those places with your clothes packed in a coffin. Go all in. Go on a mission. And I believe that we will plant churches. I believe we're going to send missionaries. We're going to raise up the next Timothy and Epaphroditus here. And the reason why is because we're on a mission from God. Tell your neighbor you're on a mission. That's right. Let's read on. Verse 29. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help that you could not give me. And finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We need to honor those who sacrifice among us. Thank you, by the way, for honoring us today. That's very humbling. But look down at the name that you wrote earlier. Look at that person's name. Let me tell you something. God wants to raise up Timothy's and Epaphroditus's for the next generation. He wants to capture the heart of young people. And guess what? He wants to use you to do it. Don't be sitting around wondering who's going to do it. It's you. I remember when, uh, when we were up in Seattle, um, I was the associate pastor, and all of a sudden, in a, a pretty quick time, our pastor had to take a sabbatical. Uh, he, he burned out bad. So he went on sabbatical, and um, I became the interim pastor. I was, gosh, I was 19, I think, or 20. Didn't have a license, and... Uh, 
I remember coming into church that Sunday and just <coughs> walking in the back. And like all of a sudden, for some reason, it struck me. Oh my gosh, this is it. Like I'm, I'm it. Like there's no, like if something happens here, I can't say, oh, let's go talk to the pastor. You know, <laughs> like, like we're it, you know. I turned to my buddy who you've met Ben a few times and I'm like, Ben, this is, it's us, man. Like, <laughs> we're it. Guys, you're it. You are the ones that God is raising up to touch and influence the next generation of people. It's not somebody else more qualified. It's, just not, it's not somebody who's a pastor, long-term pastor. It's not somebody who's got a degree in youth ministry. It's you. You're it. God has chosen you to be the bearers of the gospel for the next generation of people. And the question is, will we rise to that challenge? Will we say, send me? Will we accept the calling of God on our lives? That name represents somebody, one person, that you can invest in. In one sense, you are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are Timothy. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you are Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. Yeah, you have to practice that. God is going to raise you up because you are on a mission. He's going to redeem your name. And don't let anyone else fulfill the mission that God has given you. You fulfill that mission. And in another sense, you're Paul. In another sense, you're the church of Philippi. And it's your responsibility to be on the lookout to see whom those that God is raising up. Where are they? Where are they? Who is the young woman that you're investing in? Who is the young Hispanic man that you're investing in? Who's the next generation that you're investing in? Where are they? Who's the next missionary to Europe? Where's the sister or the brother that needs to be taken under your wing? And if you wrote down a name of somebody who's not a Christian, guys, it's a good place to start. That's a good place to start. Would you consider leading a small group? Would you consider hosting a small group? I know, I tie it all back together. But I'm looking for ways that God is working out his mission in your life. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I believe that Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, they're sitting here. They look different, but they're all sitting here today. I'm going to ask Adrian to come back up on the piano. Come on up, Adrian. And we're just going to take a moment to pray. And I believe that God has uh, maybe put something on your heart about what it means to invest, what it means to go on a mission, what it means to start feeding into and start building up, what it means to be on a mission for God. I believe maybe God has even started to kind of hint to you. Maybe it's through the name that you've written down. Maybe it's through an idea. But God is beginning to deposit things in you. And I want to encourage you as we kind of enter into a a time of... uh, little bit of worship and and some prayer open yourself up to god allow that seed to receive some water from the holy spirit today allow that seed to begin to germinate and and build just a little bit you know what it might start small all seeds start small but as it begins to grow as it begins to to increase as you begin to take steps of faith as you begin to make a phone call that seed begins to start to show little signs of life and over time because brothers and sisters it's all over time all of a sudden you'll turn around and there's no longer a seed there's a plant and that plant grows into a tree 
and that tree begins reproducing seeds of its own. That's how this works.